This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This here is episode 164, entitled Mark's High Human Christology, chapters 4 through 5. The Gospel of Mark records the words and deeds of Jesus, the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. At least that is the conclusion Mark opens his Gospel with in the opening verse, chapter 1, verse 1. But what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God when the Gospel of Mark has so many exalted things attributed to Jesus? In other words, how high is Mark's Christology? In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will explore three more stories about Jesus that demonstrate his exalted status and Mark's high Christology. First, we will look at Jesus controlling the chaotic seas. Then, we will examine Jesus' encounter with the Gerasene demoniac, who worships Jesus and makes his own Christological confession. Lastly, we will look closely at the conclusion of the story involving the Gerasene demoniac where Jesus reveals himself to be the Lord. How can we take all of these details into account as we attempt to better understand the high Christology taught within the Gospel of Mark? And what can we say about Jesus' relationship to God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus controls the seas. Our passage is Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. So what we have here is yet another story demonstrating Jesus' authority. 
Jesus has previously demonstrated his authority within the narrative of the Gospel of Mark over diseases, over demons, over sin itself, over the Sabbath, and even over his followers by summoning them, appointing them, and commissioning them. It is also noteworthy to point out that Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the land earlier in chapter 4. Through the parables involving the land, like the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, and the parable of the hidden mustard seed, Jesus shows that he has authority and power over the land. And now at the end of chapter 4, he is demonstrating his authority over the sea. So you can conclude by just reading Mark chapter 4 that Jesus has authority and dominion over the land and over the sea. Land and sea. It's very interesting that when we put the Gospel of Mark within its context as a Greco-Roman biography written within the Greco-Roman world. There are various other persons that were described as the masters of land and sea. And guess what? These persons were the various Caesars of the Roman Empire. They were described as, quote, masters of sea and land. And this particular title, master of sea and land, was attributed to Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Vespasian, and even Domitian. Now, these exalted claims that are attributed to the Caesars are understandable. That's how the Roman imperial propaganda was going about within the first century. But a more down-to-earth account is actually contained within the historical works of Plutarch, a first-century writer, and Dio Cassius, a second-century writer. These two writers both record a particular story about Julius Caesar that I think is very interesting when we look at the story involving Jesus. So Julius Caesar, according to Plutarch and Dio Cassius, got onto a boat. He pretended to actually be a slave And when the wind and the sea became too much to advance the boat any further, Caesar reveals himself to be Caesar, hoping to inspire confidence with the people on the boat. The rowers, with their newfound confidence, pushed on. But the weather was just too bad, and Caesar and his boat were forced to return to shore, being unsuccessful. It's a very interesting story that even these famous Caesars that were proclaimed within propaganda as the masters of land and sea, when you actually see what went on during their life, when we have some more honest accounts, we can see that they actually didn't have full control over the elements. And so what do we have here? We have Mark detailing a story of Jesus who has already demonstrated his authority and dominion over the land and now he demonstrates his authority over the sea and this is something that probably was intended to be subversive of the claims of the Roman Empire especially its various emperors. And so how does Jesus deal with the sea? Well it's interesting that the wording that is used when we look at the Greek 
is that the wind is actually rebuked. You can see this in Mark 4.39 that Jesus rebukes the wind with the Greek verb epitimao, which is the very same verb that Mark has already used to rebuke the demons in chapter 1, verse 25, and 3, verse 12. So the demonstrating of authority over the sea and the winds is much like the controlling of the chaotic, demonic world. Is Mark portraying the sea in some sense as part of the chaotic, demonic world? Something to consider, because Jesus rebukes both the demons and the wind. Now, the disciples are very fearful after the demonstration of power and authority from Jesus. And after Jesus calms the storms, the disciples become very much afraid, and they're asking this question, who then is this? And it's interesting to kind of see where the disciples are at in regard to their understanding of who Jesus is at this particular part of the story. They acknowledge him openly as teacher when they request that he rescue them. And they acknowledge his authority over the sea and the wind. But they don't know what to make of Jesus. We don't have, at this part of the story, a definitive Christological confession or a title used of Jesus by the disciples. Yet they are fearful and perplexed. And it's very important that we keep this in mind as we move on to the next story in chapter 5. The disciples, at this particular point, after a demonstration of Jesus' authority, they are fearful and perplexed, and they're not quite sure what to make of Jesus. Now, when we see a figure within Second Temple Judaism demonstrating authority over the waves and the waters and the seas, it's very easy to assume that this figure is the true God, Yahweh himself. One could easily point to a passage like Psalm 89. Let's look at verses 8 through 9, where it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea when its waves rise you still them. That's Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9. And in a passage like this, it's identifying Yahweh, and it's saying, who is like you? You're the one that rules the sea, and you still the waves. And it makes it out as if Yahweh is the only person that can do this. And so there have been some interpreters of Mark that have looked at what Jesus did here in Mark chapter 4, and they'll point to these various passages in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible where Yahweh is the one who stills the waves and rules over the seas. And they have concluded, with some sort of justification, that Jesus here is being presented as Yahweh. So is Mark portraying Jesus as Yahweh, the ruler of the seas and the waves? Well, it's interesting. If we take that very same psalm, Psalm 89, and we read a little bit further, we find some interesting information about Yahweh's anointed king, about the Davidic king. 
And so let's still look in Psalm 89. I'm going to start in verse 20. Listen to the words very carefully here. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. That's Psalm 89, verses 20 through 25. And so at this part of the psalm, God himself is speaking. And God says, look, I have chosen David. I have anointed him. And in this last passage, in verse 25, God says, I shall also set his hand, set David's hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. What's going on here? We have God, Yahweh, the Lord, who is in control and rules the rivers and the seas and the winds, and God selects this human king, this anointed king, this Davidic figure, and God puts this anointed king's hand on the sea, and God puts this anointed king's right hand on the rivers. So God is sharing his own rule and dominion and ownership over the seas and the rivers with another person, namely with the anointed king, with this Davidic royal figure. So God is sharing his prerogatives with another person. And so when we fit this story in Mark chapter 4 within that particular context, it seems less likely that Mark is depicting Jesus as Yahweh himself, but much more likely within the context in Judaism where Yahweh shares his prerogatives with certain high-ranking authorized human agents. And Jesus is certainly a high-ranking human agent. He is the Son of God. He is the authorized Son of Man. He is the anointed king. He is the one that's been anointed at his baptism. And so, if God has demonstrated his ability to share his authority, dominion, and power with qualified human agents, we should not immediately assume that Mark is making Jesus out to be Yahweh. Mark could, in fact, and I think it's very likely, that Mark is making Jesus out to be the agent of Yahweh, the human being that God has shared his control over the sea just as we observe in Psalm 89. And we should also note that the disciples didn't conclude that Jesus, who is in control of the wind and the sea, is Yahweh himself. They were perplexed, confused, and fearful. And since we've already seen that Mark has portrayed Jesus as an authorized human agent of God, it would seem most appropriate and consistent to interpret Jesus' authority over the sea and the wind in light of the practice of God sharing his authority and prerogatives with the anointed Davidic king. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two, 
Jesus received worship and cast out legion. This is in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came about to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him any longer, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion and they became frightened those who had seen it described to them how it had happened in the demon possessed man and all about the swine and they began to implore him to leave their region that's mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 17 so as soon as the story where jesus demonstrates his authority over the seas ends they get to land, and they are in the region of the Gerasenes, where this particular story is described. Now, the Gerasenes comes from the Hebrew root Gerasa, with the consonants Gimel, Resh, and Sheen. And this is actually a common verb within the Hebrew, within the Old Testament, which means to drive out, to cast out. And so the Gerasenes is literally the land in need of casting out, or the land in need of exorcisms. It's a very important detail that is often missed with preachings of this passage. So what do we find in the land in need of exorcisms? We have a man in need of exorcisms, a demon-possessed man. But specifically, it is actually the demons who correctly recognize Jesus. They call him by name. They call Jesus by his given human name. 
and they refer to him as the Son of the Most High God. And this is very interesting because in the previous story, the disciples were perplexed about who Jesus was when he bore his authority. And now, when Jesus bears his authority over demons, the demons are actually able to correctly identify him. There's a bit of irony there. And now Jesus is acknowledged by these demons as the Son of God. Of course, this is the title given to Jesus by Mark within the opening of the Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Son of God. And so the declaration by the demons is theologically correct and in agreement with what Mark would have his readers come to understand. Remember, Son of God means the anointed king, the Messiah, who is the agent of God's redemptive rule. Now we should also point out here that it's not just that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. He is identified as the Son of the Most High God. God here is actually referred to as the Most High God. And this is another detail that often gets overlooked within the reading of this passage. Why is it that God here is described as the Most High God? Is it significant? Well, when you look at the various places within the Hebrew Bible, both in the Hebrew and in the Aramaic sections, where God is described as the Most High, Elyon, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, by the way, the title is used in many times to refer to God when he subdues the nations and his enemies. It actually portrays God as a warrior God. He is the Most High God who is Most High over all of his enemies, often over the Gentiles. And so you can see this God as a warrior figure of sorts, described as the Most High God in Psalm 9, Psalm 47, Psalm 83, very specifically in Deuteronomy 32, and classically in Daniel chapter 7, which is all about the beast that come out of the sea fighting against the human son of man and those human beings that he represents. So, if the Most High God is a reference to God in his capacity to subdue the nations, then, of course, the Son of the Most High God would share in this conquering warrior role. And so in this passage, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the demons, and it's not an accident that the demons are called legion, which is the name of a group of about 5,400 Roman troops. It's also not an accident that the Roman legion that occupied Judea during the Jewish war between 66 and 70 actually occupied the town of Gerasa. And this was around the time when the Gospel of Mark was written. So those that are reading the story at the time that the gospel is written would see that, oh, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the Romans, specifically over the legions 
the legions that have come to occupy us and the legion that has occupied this man that has been demonized. And yet Jesus is the one that is subduing the enemies. Jesus is the son of the warrior Most High God. Jesus is the true conqueror who is in control and bears the correct authority right now. There's a lot of interesting points that are bound up within the story that just get overlooked in common quick readings. So Jesus demonstrates his authority over the Romans within this particular exorcism. A lot of political subversion that's going on in this story. Not unlike Jesus being described as the master of the land and the sea in Mark chapter 4. Okay, so Jesus' authority is actually granted and assumed by the demons because they are consistently requesting, urging, imploring, and entreating Jesus. And this is actually one of the definitions of the Greek verb parakaleo, when it involves the subject entreating or begging the object that ranks higher than the subject. I think the New Revised Standard Version actually translates all four occurrences of this particular verb as begging, understanding that the demons are begging Jesus by acknowledging the fact that Jesus is someone who bears considerable authority. And so the highest concentration of this particular verb within the Gospel of Mark shows up in this particular story. We see it four times. Look here in verse 10. He began to implore him, to implore Jesus, earnestly not to send them out into the country. That's verse 10. In verse 12, the demons implored him, implored Jesus, saying, send us into the swine. In verse 17, they began to implore him, Jesus, to leave their region, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Verse 18, a passage a little beyond our story, but we'll be returning to it very shortly. So the verb that's being used here, identifying the object of the verb as someone ranked higher than the subject, is another indicator of Jesus as someone who bears authority. Now the other issue in this text involves worship. The demon-possessed man runs up to Jesus and falls down and worships him. What does Jesus receiving worship say about Mark's Christology. Should we assume that just because someone receives worship, that that worship, if it is true and authentic and accepted, that the object of worship is Yahweh, the true God? Well, this is not actually true because God was not the only person that was authorized to receive worship within Second Temple Judaism. Consider this passage from... First Chronicles 29, verse 20, which talks about the Davidic kingdom. And it says, All the assembly blessed Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to Yahweh and to the king. First Chronicles 29, verse 20. So there, in that passage, the entire assembly bowed low and did homage to Yahweh and to the king, to King David. 
both Yahweh and King David are the objects of the verb doing homage. And so it's possible within Judaism that high-ranking human beings, anointed figures, guess what, son of God figures, can receive worship alongside Yahweh. And Yahweh is not threatened by this. And so when we see Jesus here receiving worship, is he receiving worship as appropriate to Yahweh? Or is he receiving worship as someone like the king, the son of God? Well, we can answer this pretty clearly. Because at the time that the demonized man worships Jesus, there is an acknowledgement that Jesus is the son of the Most High God. Jesus is not identified as the Most High God. He is identified as the son of the Most High God. Remember, son of God means the anointed king. Who can receive worship? Yahweh and the anointed king. So if Jesus being worshipped here and identified as the son of God, then he is receiving worship that is due to the son of God, the anointed king. Being worshipped here is not an indicator that Mark thinks that Jesus is Yahweh. Let's move us to our third and final point, which is Jesus calls himself the Lord. Jesus calls himself the Lord. And we can see this in the next three verses within our narrative in Mark. Mark chapter 5, let's start in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. That's Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And so Jesus tells the recently exercised man to go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. Jesus here acknowledges himself as the Lord. And we can tell that he is referring to himself because the way that Mark portrays the story is that the healed man goes away and begins to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. So he interprets that the Lord did this as Jesus having done this. So are we to assume that Mark is portraying Jesus claiming to be the Lord as the Lord God, as Yahweh himself? I think this is unlikely for a few reasons. We've already seen that the demoniac has claimed that Jesus is the son of the Most High God. And remember, son of the Most High God distinguishes that son from the Most High God. To be son of God means that you are not God yourself. We've already noticed within Mark's Gospel, especially at the end of chapter 2, where Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, that the Greek noun kyrios is a flexible word. It could refer to God, but it could also refer to a human superior, to a master. It could also just be a polite way to refer to someone as a sir. 
And Jesus already referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And we discussed there that it's likely that Jesus regards himself as a human master, the master of the Sabbath, since it is the Son of Man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is the authorized human being who is master of the Sabbath. It's not the human being who is Yahweh, because God is not a human being. Now, this is the second time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus is referred to as the Lord. And I want to keep track of this because it's very interesting that this declaration seems to come at the conclusion of certain stories. I'm starting to see a pattern. The title will reappear in chapter 7 as a confession of the Syrophoenician woman. We'll have to wait to get there to look at that particular account. But eventually, and this is what I think is very important for Mark, Jesus is going to cite a very important psalm when he gets to chapter 12. And when Jesus cites this psalm, namely Psalm 110.1, where Yahweh speaks to someone other than himself, calling him my Lord, we have Jesus identifying himself as that my Lord that is distinguished from Yahweh. And this is very, very crucial. That passage, by the way, is Mark 12. 36, where Jesus cites Psalm 110.1, which says that Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus refers to himself as that second Lord, one who is distinguished from the first Lord Yahweh. It is very crucial in that it indicates that Jesus' own self-understanding as the Lord was not meant in a way that collapses Yahweh and Jesus together. Nor does Jesus confuse God and himself. They are distinguished always, just as the title Son of the Most High God distinguishes the Son and the Most High God. So, therefore, it's highly unlikely that Jesus is telling the recently exercised man that he is Yahweh. It is more probable that Jesus, by referring to himself as the Lord, thinks of himself as a human superior, someone who is authorized and empowered, someone who has the authority to cast out demons, as we've already seen in Mark's Gospel in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, someone who is authorized as God's agent, as the Son of God. The repeated actions and words wherein Jesus functions as this special agent of God gives an added level of comfort in concluding that Jesus' claim to lordship is that of a human superior, not one claiming to be Yahweh himself. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Mark has many great and exalted things to say about Jesus. However, the manner in which we gauge this high Christology rests on a clear reading of all the evidence available. We first noted that Jesus demonstrates his authority over the seas when a boat full of him and his disciples were in danger of sinking. In calming 
the seas and the winds. The actions of Jesus could have been read as subversive to the claims of various Roman emperors, who were heralded as the masters of land and sea. By rebuking the chaotic forces of nature, Jesus exhibits similar expressions of authority as Mark has already demonstrated in the various exorcisms. Furthermore, we saw in Psalm 89 that Yahweh shares his dominion over the waves and the seas with his anointed king, thus empowering a human agent with a divine prerogative. Jesus, therefore, demonstrates his authority over the sea as one who has been empowered and authorized by the true God. Second, we observed that Jesus entered the region of the Gerasenes and encountered a demoniac who offered a Christological confession and offered worship to Jesus. The demons, named after a Roman legion, correctly understood that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, thereby agreeing with the description of Jesus offered by Mark at the outset of the Gospel narrative. Moreover, as the Son of the Most High God, the echoes of the Most High, being the one who subdues nations and enemies, presents Jesus as the Son of this warrior god, to whom dominions named after a Roman legion submit with begging and repeated imploring. While the demoniac worships Jesus, this likely indicates that it was a worship in alignment with the confessed title, namely, Jesus as the Son of the Most High God, which fits well within the flexible worship practices of Judaism, wherein the Israelite king was perfectly capable of receiving worship alongside Yahweh. Lastly, we noted in the conclusion of the story involving the Gerasen demoniac that the exorcised man is commissioned by Jesus to go and tell others what the Lord has done, resulting in the man telling others what Jesus has done for him. By regarding himself as the Lord, Jesus is making a high claim of his own importance. But Mark's Gospel later indicates that the Lord Jesus is understood as the Lord alongside Yahweh in Psalm 110 verse 1. Therefore, Jesus' acknowledgement of the title Lord would not make him out to be Yahweh, but rather an exalted and empowered figure alongside Yahweh, distinguished from Yahweh. In all three biblical examples explored, Mark continues to demonstrate his high Christology, but the Christology is high human Christology, wherein Jesus bears the authority and empowerment from God. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we continue to look in the Gospel of Mark for the most exalted things said about Jesus in order to take seriously his entire 
Christological perspective. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us by sharing your favorite episodes and writing an honest review on iTunes. If you feel led to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Be sure also to check us out on YouTube, where we have frequent short, shareable videos. I want to give a special thanks and shout-out to our editor and producer, Dustin Williams, for his fine work each and every week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.